Well, let's start today with a question. What is the highest office in the local church? What is the highest office in the local church? Now, hopefully, as I ask that question, something pops immediately into your head one way or the other. But keep that question and its answer, if you have an answer to that question, what's the highest office in the local church, in the back of your mind. We'll readdress that towards the end. And just just store it, because what we're going to do is we're going to continue on into Matthew 23. And what we see in Matthew 23 is going to address, in some measure, that question. And before we jump into a new chapter of Matthew... Uh, we need to understand that this new chapter really is integrally tied with what has already come, with what has already come before. Uh, You remember Jesus enters Jerusalem. He enters Jerusalem as the son of David, the ultimate Davidic king, the ruler over, the rightful ruler over Israel and over the world. He enters as the temple builder. You remember um, as he enters the second time, so he goes, uh, after he enters initially, he goes out, he stays in Bethany, and then he comes back the next day, and on his way in, he curses a fig tree, and what we said is this is indicating uh, a, a, um, a, a cursing of this generation, that wicked generation of Israel and its leadership, but also it indicates more as he talks to his disciples and says, uh, look, what I've done to the fig tree, you can do more because uh, you could say to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea. And we said that that's an indication of uh, a slight indication of the temple, the temple's destruction. Because as uh, th- that idea of the temple's destruction, it, it is frames uh, Jesus' entrance into the temple, and it's also going to frame his exit. If you flip ahead to Matthew 24, when Jesus actually exits the temple, 24, 1 and 2, Jesus finally exits the temple. He's in the temple um, telling uh, uh, parables, teaching, disputing, but then he exits the temple after Matthew 23, and the disciples are pointing out all the beautiful things in the temple, and it was stunning. It was one of the ancient wonders of the world. And he says, do you see all these things? They're going to be thrown down. They're going to be destroyed. So what you have to understand is framing what we have seen Jesus do in terms of his parables, which have indicted that wicked generation of Israel. They've indicted the leadership, the chief priests, the leaders of the people, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Framing all of that is this imminent threat of the destruction of the temple. God's temple being in Israel as the concentrated manifestation of God's presence on earth. With Jesus' parables, like I've said, he has has addressed that wicked generation that has rejected him as Messiah. He has rejected the leadership. He has indicted the leadership for rejecting him as Messiah. He's also painted a picture of the future, uh, the, uh, the, the kingdom of God, the manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth is going to be taken away from you, not only the leaders, but Israel, and given to a people who's going to produce its fruits. And then there's been, in Matthew 22, this back and forth debate, these disputes, where the leadership has now has their turn, and they're trying to trip Jesus up by his words. We had the Sadducees, we had the disciples of the Pharisees, and we had the Pharisees themselves. And what we, see, what we saw is that in each case, Jesus humbled his questioners and showed himself to be the supreme teacher, leading up to that final culminating episode that we saw last week of Jesus asking, well, whose son is the Christ? And baffling them all. So coming out of chapter 22, it is very clear that Jesus is the supreme teacher. He's one. Let's put it that way. He is one. 
don't know if you've ever watched a like real debate. I'm not talking a presidential debate because those aren't real anymore. They don't really are debates. But if you've ever seen a real debate where you have one person at one podium and another person at another podium, and then they obey the rules, there's back and forth on this issue, there's rebuttals and all of that. It's like that's what's just happened with the disputes between the leadership of Israel and Jesus, the supposed expert teachers of the scriptures and Jesus, and Jesus has wiped the floor with them. But now what he starts to do in 23, he starts to do something interesting. It's as if, if we were to use that debate illustration, it's as if he clearly, in front of everyone, has won that debate. And now from his podium, he begins to address his audience, those who have been observing the debate, and even the other debater, and basically in, um, in uh, terms saying, I'm, I've won. I'm the teacher, and listen up to what I have to teach you. Because that's what Jesus is going to do in this chapter in Matthew 23. I just want to give you a brief flyby of Matthew 23 and what Jesus is doing. He's going to, today, he's going to talk to the crowds and the disciples. He hasn't talked to them directly. They've been listening in, but he hasn't talked to them directly for a while. Now he's going to do so. Then in 13 through 32, a bulk, the bulk of the chapter, he's going to pronounce woe, judgment, on these leaders, these hypocritical leaders uh, that he has already been indicting. He's going to pronounce a woe. And not only on the leadership, but in 33 through 39, he's then going to give a summary uh, judgment on the leadership, yes, but also the whole generation, the whole wicked generation, the whole, whole of Jerusalem, which has rejected him from being Messiah. And then, like I've already pointed out, as he then exits, significantly he exits the temple at the beginning of 24, 1 and 2, he, he indicates the fate is sealed. Jerusalem will be destroyed. Now, as we enter this chapter, and as we enter that outline, as Jesus is really addressing these different audiences, given the fact that he's just beat everyone in debate, he has displayed himself to be the supreme teacher of Israel, I want you to keep in mind a fact. Uh, remember last week where we talked about the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself? Um, I want you to carry that thought of loving neighbor as self into this chapter. You see, what Jesus is doing in this chapter is him loving his neighbors, which is not normally how we think about this chapter. As Jesus walks into this chapter, he's going to love the, um, the, the uh, crowds and his disciples by teaching them and instructing them, but he's also going to love the scribes and the Pharisees by pronouncing woe on them. That's not normally how we think about love, is it? But if we understand that Jesus is loving all the time, and he's supposed to love his neighbor as himself, even his enemies, who's their neighbor, then we have to understand that what Jesus is going to do, and we'll do this in a couple weeks, in pronouncing woe on the scribes and Pharisees, and even that generation is the most loving thing he can do. We will visit that idea more as we go. But how is he going to love the crowds and the disciples? Well, that brings us to today and the big idea for this morning, which is this. Stop listening to play-acting teachers and humble yourself under the one teacher, the Christ. Stop listening to play-acting teachers and humble yourself under the one teacher, the Christ. I use the term play-acting because that is really the word for hypocrite. Uh, the word for hypocrite is someone who's he's putting on a face. They're putting on a play. They're putting on a display. And we've, we've said that throughout Matthew, and Jesus is going to address that very much in chapter 23 
Someone is pretending to do one thing and is really another. And so Jesus, in his main idea for his audience today, and Matthew's audience, is stop listening to play-acting teachers and humble yourself under the one teacher, the Christ. Now, this is going to come in two parts today. We're going to see the first part in verses 1 through 7. And the main idea of this section is this. Stop listening to teachers who contradict their teaching with their actions. Stop listening to teachers who contradict their teaching with their actions. Okay, let's take a look at the text. Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and his disciples. So who has Jesus been speaking to? He's been speaking in his parables and in the disputes that has just happened in Matthew 23 to a primary audience. The primary audience has been the leadership of Israel. It's been the chief priests and the elders of the people. It's been Pharisees and it's been scribes. Uh, Those are just different terms probably to indicate a lot of these different folks that Jesus has been interacting with. Now, we are under to understand that a secondary audience, those kind of in the, the offing, are crowds and disciples. But now Jesus switches gears in verse 1, and he now primarily addresses crowds and disciples. Now, the crowds in Matthew, as we've said all along, whether we're talking Galilee or now in Jerusalem, the crowds are sort of those that are in the middle. If the Pharisees and scribes are on one end, they're clearly Jesus' enemies, and disciples are those who are committed followers of Jesus, the crowds are somewhere in the middle. They like, to, they like Jesus' teaching, they like his miracles, but they're not committed disciples. They could be if they repent and entrust themselves to Jesus, but uh, they're not yet. And so here Jesus switches from speaking to his enemies directly to now speaking to those who are already committed followers and those who could be committed followers, the crowds. And what is he going to say? Verse 2. Upon the seat of Moses, the scribes and Pharisees sat. Now, a couple things we have to notice here. First, this verb for sit is indicated in the original is normally a past tense. And I believe that's how Jesus is using it here. He is saying the scribes and the Pharisees have sat upon the seat of Moses. In other words, they've sat themselves on the seat of Moses. What does that mean? Well, first, let's remind ourselves about the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes in Israel are those who have an official teaching capacity and position within Israel. Uh, They probably overlapped, yes, to an extent with the Pharisees, but probably also the Sadducees, who were part of the temple um, kind of leadership. The Pharisees, by contrast, they were a grassroots movement, but they were those who had made a reputation for being pious and also for being good teachers and interpreters of the law. And so they don't have an official position, but they have a great deal of grassroots respect. But Jesus says to both of these groups, they sat themselves upon the seat of Moses. Now, what is the seat of Moses? Um, there's not a hundred percent clarity on this, but if you were to go back to Exodus 18, you don't have to turn there, but in Exodus 18, you see Moses before Sinai and he is, what he does, he's talking to his father-in-law Jethro and he talks about what all God has done. And then he eventually he goes and he sits. And what does he do when he sits? He judges the whole of Israel. The idea is people bring them cases. They bring him disputes. And Moses is acting as 
the judge. He's saying, all right, well, based on what God has said, here is how you act in that scenario. Based on what God has said, here's the proper judgment in this situation. And I think that's what Jesus is probably alluding to, is the idea that the scribes and the Pharisees have taken upon themselves that authority in the sense that they have the written law, the law of Moses, but they have not only taken upon themselves the written law, they've also taken upon themselves the uh, responsibility of interpreting the written law. What does it mean? But then also, how does it apply? Always, uh, including today, when we look at scripture, we don't really want to hear it and interpret it. We want to apply it to life. That is what God's design is. So these folks, the scribes and the Pharisees, have taken on themselves the responsibility not only of interpreting the law, but then of applying it to life. But here's the other thing. In applying the law to life, the Pharisees and the scribes have also added a great deal of tradition. You can see this in Matthew 15. Uh, you know, the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees come up and they critique Jesus on some point. And he says, you, you're replacing, you're, um, you're actually putting over God's commands, the commands of men. So that's the point to which it had gotten. But what they do that in, that in the capacity of an office, an office of sitting in the seat of Moses. They've taken upon themselves, they have sat down, they have sat themselves down. So they've taken upon themselves the responsibility of interpreting and applying the law. That's what Jesus, I believe, is referencing here. Now, what does Jesus do with this? Verse 3, therefore, because, in other words, that they, the scribes and Pharisees, have taken on themselves this responsibility. Therefore, as much as they tell you to do, as much as they speak to you, everything they say to you, do and keep it. Now, let's pause there for a second and think about what Jesus just said. Jesus just formally said that for these scribes and Pharisees, as much as they speak to you, it's not just, oh, that they're reading the scriptures and obey that. No, he's saying as much as they speak to you, as much as they teach to you, do and keep. Now, if you've read Matthew and you've stuck with us this long through Matthew, that's very odd. That's very surprising. Because all throughout, even as far back as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has undermined the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, you can see in Matthew 15, already referenced that, where uh, the scribes and Pharisees saying, hey, uh, why, why don't you do this like we do? Why, why don't you do, why are you eating grain on the Sabbath? That's an earlier chapter. Why aren't you doing this in accordance with the tradition of the elders? In other words, that's something that the scribes and the Pharisees said, they taught, and yet they approached Jesus or his disciples and say, hey, why don't you doing that? So Jesus himself hasn't kept what he is saying here. In fact, he's undermined the teaching authority of these scribes and Pharisees, most recently in the last chapter, right? He has is, he is very clearly indicated that these guys are frauds. They're not true interpreters of the law and teachers of the law, and he is the supreme teacher. So we're suspicious about what Jesus is saying here. He is formally saying... They sit on the, uh, the, 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 the seat of Moses. They've taken on themselves as authority. So you better do and keep what they say. But I believe what Jesus is doing here is he is speaking ironically. In other words, um, we can't record. There was no uh, audio recorder when Jesus said this. 
So we can't convey the tone exactly. But based on what Matthew has done up to this point, based on what Jesus has done up to this point, I believe Jesus might have said something like this. Well, the scribes of the Pharisees sat on the, uh, the, the seat of Moses. So go ahead and do what they tell you to do. All as much as they tell you to do. I'm trying to exaggerate that, but the idea is he's speaking ironically. He's speaking somewhat sarcastically. Because notice what comes immediately next. But according to their deeds, in conformity with their works, stop doing it. Stop doing what? Well, what did Jesus just command? He said, as much as they tell you to do, do it. And now immediately he's saying, but in conformity with their works, stop doing it. In other words, he formally gives with one hand saying, obey all that they tell you to do based on their authority that they've taken on themselves. But then in the very next breath, he takes away what he just gave and says, stop doing all that they commanded to do. Why? In conformity with their deeds. And he supports this. He says, for they speak and they're not doing. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, okay, they, they took to themselves this authority to interpret the law and to apply the law. And so based on that authority and on that position, then you ought to obey what they tell you to do. But there's a mitigating factor here. The mitigating factor is uh, if leadership and teaching is not just by words, it's by example. And so if you're to look at the standard of their example, you better stop doing what they're telling you to do because what they're telling you to do, they don't do what they are telling you to do. They say one thing and they don't do it. And so based on the fact that they don't do it, then you'd better stop doing what they are doing. That's how the grammar reads in the original. Is It's not just... Well, they do this and they don't do it. It's like, uh, so you better not do it. It's, it's stop doing. You're supposed to obey them. You're supposed to keep these things. Well, based on the authority of the, law, uh, the, the seed of Moses, yeah, go ahead. But based on their works, you better stop doing that if you follow their example. Because they're speaking, but they're not doing. So Jesus isn't actually telling them in contradiction to everything he's done in Matthew, yeah, you better obey these guys. He's saying, no, you better not obey these guys because they speak, but they don't do. They preach, but they don't practice, is how we would say that. And he, then he develops this thought. He, he develops this thought a little bit more in verse 4. Well, it's, uh, he, de he delves in more to this idea that they speak and they don't do. Look at verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. So this is an imagery of uh, binding. Uh, so the idea of making a law or a commandment binding in terms of application on a person, they would bind up a bundle, and Jesus is saying, it's heavy, it's hard, it's not easy. And if you look at some of the things that uh, the Pharisees uh, from extra biblical literature, some of the things that the Pharisees and scribes might have said, very heavy stuff, very oppressive commands, not even rooted in scripture, but rooted in tradition. We saw that in Matthew 15, and it's hard to bear. And they put it on people's shoulders so that you can imagine someone just bowed down under this load of teaching and application. But what does Jesus say? They, that's what they do, but what else? But they themselves 
are not willing to move them, these loads, with their finger. So you've got two body parts uh, contrasted here. You've got shoulders, which are bearing a heavy load. And then when you switch gears over to the scribes and the Pharisees, when the load comes due for them, they're not willing to touch it with their little finger. And the idea is, I think, is it's just explaining in a very visual way what Jesus has already said. They're happy to speak. They're happy to put loads on others. But when it comes time for their own application of these loads, that their own bearing of such loads, they, you know, twist words and say, well, you know, and get themselves out of their own burdens because they speak, but they don't do. And what is Jesus' whole point in this? Stop listening to them. Stop listening to those who speak. And they may say some nice things, and they may sound like very reasonable things, but those who speak and don't do, stop listening to them. And this makes sense, given what Jesus has already done in chapter 22, because he has shown he's the supreme teacher. He's the the ultimate teacher, not these frauds. So stop listening to those guys. And as we see as the passage develops, listen to me. Listen to the Christ. And this is nothing new. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, Come to me, all you who were weary and heavy laden, like with heavy burdens on their shoulders, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Jesus is saying, uh, the load of the Pharisees is heavy. The load of the Christ is light by comparison. But Jesus points to something else. Uh, to back up his command, stop listening to these people. Stop listening to these people. Notice what he does in verse 5. They, this is the scribes and Pharisees, do all their deeds to be seen by others. So Jesus is no longer addressing the issue of these guys speak and don't do. Now he's addressing something else. Now he's addressing the issue of motivation. Motivation. What is the motivation for what the scribes and the Pharisees do, and all that they do. And Jesus says, they do all their deeds, all their deeds that they do, all their piety or their professed piety, their teaching. Why do they do what they do? They do what they do to be seen by others, to be noticed, to receive from others honor and status. And so then Jesus explains how this plays itself out. For... They make their phylacteries broad and their tassels large. Now, what is a phylactery? It's not, a, um, it's, it's not where they produce um, different things out there. Uh, that's not a phylactery. That's a factory. Uh, what's a phylactery? All right. What's a phylactery? Now, some of you already know this, but um, you remember Deuteronomy 6, we read it last week, so you don't have to turn there. But in Deuteronomy 6, it, um, it, Moses starts off with saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall write them on the palm of your hand and as, put them as uh, signs on the fr- palm of your hand and as frontlets between your eyes. Well, some people decided, hey, that must be literal. So we're going to go ahead and make some little leather boxes And we're going to put uh, scripture verses, some key scripture verses in those little boxes. And we're going to put one on our forearm and one between our eyes. And they found some of these archaeologically. These exist. And there are varying sizes and all of that. But that's what Jesus is talking about. It's a little box that has some scripture verses. And they would literally wear it between their, on their forehead or on their forearm. 
okay? Now, um, you could debate about whether that's supposed to be the import of Moses's words in Deuteronomy 6. Nonetheless, that's what was happening purportedly in obedience to Moses's words and God's words. But what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about these scribes and Pharisees, and they make their phylacteries big. So in other words, it sticks out more, whether it's on your forearm or on your forehead. Now, why would you do that? Uh, And there's some debate. Maybe it's like, well, you wrote larger, and so you put more scripture or put more verses or put, uh, put larger script on the memory verses you did write, so your box is larger. But what is the purpose? That's what Jesus is getting at. Why do you do that? Why are you making your phylactery bigger or your phylacteries bigger? Because you want to be noticed. You want to be noticed. Well, you got a big phylactery. That guy must be super spiritual, right? Or what about the whole tassels thing? What's the deal with the tassels? Well, that is an explicit command in Scripture. If you go back to Numbers, there's a command that uh, people are supposed to put tassels on the edges of their garments, four tassels. And the idea is, it's a very practical reminder. You look down and you see this tassel, and it's like, oh yeah, that's a reminder that I belong to God, and I love God, and I want to keep his commandments. That's basically what it was for. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but you tie a string on your finger to remind yourself of something. Well, that's what the tassels were supposed to do. You are as a very physical reminder, just a very easy way to say, oh yeah, the tassel, that means I belong to God, and I'm to keep his commandments. But here's the deal. The scribes and the Pharisees are making their tassels big. Well, you got a big tassel there, buddy. You must be very serious about obeying God. Now, notice something about that. That is an explicit command that you wear tassels on the edges of your garment. That is an explicit command from the Old Testament. But what are the scribes and Pharisees doing? They're taking a legitimate command and they are twisting it to do what? To redirect attention to themselves. And Jesus is saying that shows their motivation. They're doing what they're doing to be seen by others. That is what they are doing. And he continues with this idea of motivation. Verse 6, and they love. Now notice that word love. They love. First position at feasts. So the idea is you go to a dinner, and people in that culture, it's an honor-shame culture, people would be seated according to their social status. And so what do the scribes and Pharisees want? They want first position. They want the best position. Why? So that they are seen, and so that they are accorded honor, status, in the eyes of those around them. What else? And the first seats in the synagogue. So you go to synagogue, uh, just like at, uh, at church, right? Some seats are better than others, right? And uh, some seats you can see better, but really and the idea is some seats show your honor and your status in society better, right? You can think of it in terms of stadium seating, right? You can buy the cool plush box at the stadium, or you can have the cheap seats in the nosebleed section, right? And one, even in, in our day and age, right, one shows your status, One shows your status in relation to others. Well, that's what these guys want. And it's not just they want it, they love it. They love it when they can get that acclaim, that status from others. And it keeps going. Jesus keeps addressing the issue of motives. Verse 7, and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. So you go to the marketplace and someone recognizes, oh, you're 
you're the, that teacher, you're a rabbi. Rabbi just means teacher. Jesus will explain that here in verse 8. But the idea of a rabbi, it was taking on, the title was taking on itself a, a kind of a life of its own of great status, of great recognition. So these are just different ways that the Pharisees and the scribes want to be seen. Now, I want you to notice something. If you are a true teacher like Jesus, what is your job? Your job is not to draw attention to yourself. Your job is to draw attention to God. That's what true teaching does. It does not draw attention to self. It draws attention to God and his excellencies, his honor, his glory. But here, what are the scribes and the Pharisees, the purported teachers, leaders of Israel, what are they doing? They are using their position as teachers, and it's supposed to direct people towards God, but what are they doing? They're redirecting focus on themselves. So not only do these guys say and not do, but they also, their motivation is gaining status over their fellow Israelites. And so in both ways, Jesus is saying, stop listening to these guys. Stop listening to these guys. First, stop listening to them because they say and they don't do. And second, because their motivations expose who they really are. On those two counts, you better stop listening to teachers who contradict their teaching with their actions. Now, how do we apply this? We apply this very easily because the same stuff happens our own day. People don't change. And so not in the broad sense of that. So how do we think about this? Well, let's just think about it in terms of voices, right? Because that's what the Pharisees and scribes are. They're voices. They're teaching voices out there in the public square, teaching. And there have always been many voices throughout history claiming to be teaching God's way, or maybe in a more broader sense, the way of fulfillment, right? So even an atheist is going to talk about the way of fulfillment. They're not going to talk about God, but they're going to talk about how do you be fulfilled as a human being. So there's all these voices out there. But here's the thing that we can learn from Jesus. When such voices don't do what they teach or have clear motivations of self-promotion in the eyes of others, stop listening to them. Stop listening to them. Because they're not genuine teachers. They're not genuine teachers. They're charlatans. Now, let's take a very specific, concrete example that is rampant in our day. Let's take social media. Let's take social media. So you got Facebook, you got Instagram, you got YouTube. There's still five people on MySpace. Um, no, that's, that's way back. Anyway, but all these different forms of social media... And what do people do? Why do people post what they post on social media? Now, there might be a variety of reasons for doing that, but what is everyone about? Especially if you want to be an influencer or you want to be big in the social media world, you're looking for what? Likes? Follows? Uh, you want to be an influencer of some sort or another? That's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees were doing it. It's just the social aspect transported into an anonymous technological sphere. And the fact of the matter is, evangelicals can fall into this very easily and have and do. So you listen to a teacher and maybe they have some great things to say and they've got a YouTube clip 
or they've got a TV show or a podcast or a blog, or they post these things on Twitter or whatever or Instagram. And uh, I'm not saying everyone's motivation is the same. I'm not saying that. But the reality is, and we see it, that in evangelical land, we can very fall, easily fall into the celebrity pastor mindset or the celebrity leader mindset. And so you've seen some people that sound very good and they put their stuff out there. But then, there's the, then we have seen examples of these folks that sound good. They put stuff out there. And then it's like, but wait a minute. If you look at their life, it doesn't match up. What they're saying sounds good, but it doesn't match with their life. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. Or maybe it becomes very apparent uh, that this uh, evangelical leader or person that sounds good, maybe it's just very apparent. It's like, man, they're in it for the likes. They're in it for the follows. They're in it for the status. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them, even if they sound good. Here's an example I heard of in Ontario, Oregon. There was a, a fellow, a pastor, uh, doing well, doing expository ministry at a local church. And eventually what happened is they launched a YouTube channel. And then all of a sudden it became popular, you know, multiple thousands, maybe his congregations like 300, which is a good sized church. And then uh, his, uh, his YouTube channel started getting likes into the thousands. It's like, well, we could have great reach here, right? Well, it's not necessarily a bad motivation to have broader reach. But then what happened is you would get a lower YouTube ranking if you started using words like sin, and so then what's the motivation? If the motivation then twists and subtly becomes, well, my status and my YouTube channel or whatever, then it's exactly the same thing that was going on in Jesus' day. And you stop listening to that person. But it's not just about teachers. It's about all of us. How are you doing? And again, I'm picking on social media because it's a prevalent thing in our society. How are you doing on social media with self-promotion? Because it's very easy to just post Christian stuff, and I'm probably guilty of it in the past. You, it's very easy to just post Christian stuff to get likes and followers or to be an influencer. Maybe it's not even Christian stuff. Maybe you're here this morning, you're not a believer, and that's, we're glad you're here. But maybe, you know, in what you post on social media or what you do on social media, it's all about the likes it's all about the follows. And what do you become? You become enslaved to status seeking. And you know what happens to people who become enslaved to status seeking? You see this with young people who are just addicted to social media. You become suicidal. If you don't get the likes, if you don't get the follows, if you don't get the status, you become suicidal. And it doesn't even have to be about social media, right? The question is, and whatever we do, do we do what we do to look good in the eyes of others? Even legitimate scriptural commands. Did you see that with the scribes and Pharisees? They took the tassel command and they twisted it to make it about themselves. We can do the very same thing so that we can be obedient externally, but then our motivation totally evacuates our obedience because it's not about status. It's not about God. It becomes about our status. And the question is, is love for God driving our actions or love for self-status? How do you think God's going to talk to you about the times when, I mean, you know, and he knows, maybe you're even self-deceived, maybe you don't even know, 
But uh, he's going to talk to you about how you've twisted his commands or the things that you do to be about you. And you look good on the external, but it's not driven for love for God. What do we call such a person? We call such a person an idolater. Even someone who exterior, in exterior fashion is obeying the letter of the law, but not from the love of God, that is damnable. That is damnable in God's eyes. And it's very easy to be sucked down into a hole of slavery where you're just, you're just all about how do people view me? How, how are people thinking about me? Do people have a high view of me? That's slavery. And the good news is, is Jesus came to save us from that slavery. He came to free us from slavery of seeking status from one another. We don't need to do that because the love of the Father, the love of the Son, the love of the Spirit is enough. We don't need status from others. All we need is God's view of us. There's another implication, especially as we think about Father's Day today, of what is going on with the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' day. Here's the thing. Fathers, and I count myself among you now, we have a responsibility to say and to teach our children, to nourish our children in the instruction and admonition of the Lord, the training and admonition of the Lord. And we can say all of the right stuff. We can have the right theologians, the right books on our shelves, the right parenting books, but it's not going to matter if you don't practice what you say. It's not going to matter. And that's why many, many children leave evangelical churches is because they heard all the right things for years, but it was just a surface show and they saw right through it and there was no action to back it up. So fathers, I, I call us to this. Let's practice what we say. Let's love God, not just on Sunday, but at home where our kids and our wives can see that. So first, Jesus calls us in this passage, stop listening to teachers who contradict their teaching with their actions. But second, there's more to it than that. In verses 8 through 12, Jesus says this to, remember who he's talking to? He's talking to the crowds and he's talking to his disciples. And he says this, second of all, don't seek status through titles but through humble service under the one Christ. Don't seek status through titles, but through humble service under the one Christ. Look at verse 8. But you, see, he switches gears. He switches gears and he talks directly to the, the crowds and the disciples. But you are not to be called rabbi. Why? For you have one teacher and you are all brothers. What is Jesus saying here? Rabbi just, you can see it. Rabbi just means teacher. And he's saying, none of you should be called teacher. Now there's a context here because why did the scribes and the Pharisees want to be called rabbi? Why did they want to be called teacher? Well, in order to gain status for themselves, in order to lift themselves up above others. That's what they were living for. That's what they loved. So Jesus is saying, don't be called rabbi like that. Don't be called teacher like that. Why not? For you have one teacher. Who's the one teacher? Well, it becomes very clear in what we just saw in Matthew 22 and the rest of Matthew for that matter. The one teacher is Jesus. The one teacher over the Christian community is Jesus Christ. 
He is the one instructor. You see, the goal of a teacher, right, is to, uh, the goal of a human teacher is to redirect people's attention, not to the teacher, but to the ultimate teacher, Jesus. In fact, Matthew 28, 20 says this very thing when he's talking to the 11, uh, but he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that Peter commanded. No, not all that Peter commanded or all that Paul commanded, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. True Christian teaching ultimately is not about the teacher. It's a, the teacher is just a conduit to redirect you to the teaching of the Christ, the one teacher. And Jesus says, because there's this one teacher, and I'm it, right? That's what he's saying. He's saying, you're all brothers. You're all brothers and sisters. And that's been very clear throughout Matthew as well, that uh, through coming to Jesus, through following Jesus, through repenting and placing faith in Jesus and following Jesus, the disciples are equal, equally brothers and sisters in Christ. There is equality. No one is more a child of God as a disciple than another. No one is more Christian than another. And that's what the Pharisees were trying to do. They're a little more Israelite than the next Israelite. And what Jesus is saying, no, that's not how it works with y'all. I am the one teacher. You all sit under my tutelage equally as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he goes on and he develops this thought more. Do not call a man father on earth. That's kind of an interesting thing to read on Father's Day, isn't it? Uh, call no man father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Now, why, why is he talking about this idea of father? Well, even in the Old Testament, there's some examples where kings would call prophets father out of respect. Uh, Elisha calls Elijah father out of respect. Um, and so we are to understand that this was going on in Jesus' day. And what is Jesus saying? He's like, you don't call any man father in that sense. He's not saying you don't call your father your father. That doesn't make any sense. He's saying in the sense that the Pharisees and the scribes are doing it, where there is an attempt to establish a hierarchy, an authority, such that this person's more of an Israelite than another Israelite. He's saying, no, again, you're all equal. Call no man father on earth. Why? For you have one father who is in heaven. That is the glory of the gospel, is that uh, when one repents and, and trusts oneself to Christ, one becomes an adopted son or daughter of the Father, the eternal Father, the Father who eternally begot the Son, who then adopts further sons and daughters. But that means we are all equally sons and daughters if we are in Christ. And Jesus goes on one more. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Now, this word here for instructor, it's the only time, these two times, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. It seems like it means, some, it means something like guide or tutor. Um, it's a little bit different than what he said earlier. Remember he said, don't be called a rabbi, don't be called a teacher. How is that different from an instructor? Well, the term that Jesus uses here as a guide or a tutor it's a little more intimate. It's a little more far-reaching. In other words, you could be a teacher and you could teach content, but maybe kind of in a disconnected way. But when someone is a guide or a tutor for someone else, that person is coming alongside 
the person being tutored or guided to then apply what they say to life. So it's a more robust term, if you will, than even just mere teaching. So don't be called guides, for you have one guide, the Christ. So he returns to himself now. And again, it's very clear from Matthew and from what Jesus even has just done in Matthew 22, that the Christ, the true Davidic king, who is going to reign over all the world, the God-man who has become incarnate, that is the one instructor, the one tutor, the one teacher. And because of that, you are all equal. You don't have that role. Only Christ is the ultimate teacher. Only Christ is the ultimate guide. Your only father is the heavenly father. Don't be called these things, but what should you do? Well, Jesus tells you what you should do in verses 11 and 12. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Now, Jesus has already said this. He said it when James and John came up to Jesus and said, hey, I'd like rank two and rank three in the kingdom, right? They came up to him and talked to him about this in, in, in Matthew 20. And Jesus basically already addressed this issue about the greatest is your servant. Why? Because the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say it is wrong to be great or to desire to be great. But what are the scribes and Pharisees doing? Where are they seeking their greatness from? They're seeking their greatness from one another, from one-upping one another, from having a highest standard from one another. It's a horizontal seeking. But what Jesus is going to say here is, you want to be the greatest, you serve those around you. Why? Verse 12. Verse 12, for whoever shall lift himself up shall be lowered, and whoever lowers himself shall be lifted up. Now, who is doing the lowering and the raising in the second part of those statements? Who's doing the lowering? Who's doing the raising? The Father is. Because Matthew has made very clear, Jesus has made very clear that yes, there are distinct statuses and ranks and responsibilities in the kingdom of heaven, different rewards. But the issue all along has been, that's up to the father. That's up to the father. What are the scribes and Pharisees doing? They're seeking their status now over others in relation to others to one up each other. But what Jesus is doing is he's pointing to the future and saying, you want to be great? Then wait for the Father to declare greatness in its time, according to his way. And what does the Father value? The greatest among you will be your servant. Meaning what? Instead of trying to one-up and have a kind of top-down understanding of leadership and teaching over others, Jesus is saying it's bottom up because that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And what did he do? He served his brothers and sisters all the way to the point of going to the cross to die in place of their sins in their place, to be their ransom in their place, to be their righteousness in their place. He served his brothers and sisters. So brothers and sisters, do you want to be great not wrong to want to be great, but you better be seeking the Father's greatness 
And you better do it by serving one another. How do we apply this? Again, there, I mean, Jesus is talking to his disciples. This is the ethos he wants his disciples to have. We are his disciples if we are in Christ here this morning. First, we must be very cautious about our use of titles in the church and what we attach to them and what we are seeking by then. If you were to look at the New Testament and look at the titles, there are titles given. I don't think Jesus is saying, oh, you can't use that title. You can't use that title because Jesus himself gives his disciples titles in Matthew. Uh, think back to Matthew 16. Uh, G- uh, Simon confesses Jesus to be the Christ. And what does Jesus say? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for his flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Therefore, I say to you, you are Peter. And Peter just means stone. You're a stone. It's kind of a nickname, but it also indicates status because he's going to be a foundational stone in the temple structure that is the church. So Peter has a role, and Jesus gives him even a title. But even in this chapter, uh, in 23:34, he calls disciples prophets, wise men, scribes. Those are titles. So is Jesus against titles? No. But he's against using titles to one-up each other, to have a higher status, supposedly, than one another. If you look at the New Testament, there are titles given. Ephesians 4.11, talking about different offices in the church. He gave the apostles. But what you come to notice about these titles is they're functional. They're functional. So even apostle, that's like the highest title we could think of in the church. Uh, An apostle is just an emissary. Uh, someone who has kind of power of attorney authority on behalf of Jesus. It's a role. It has a function. What about prophet? He gave the apostles. He gave the prophets. A prophet is just a spokesman for God. Now, that's a high role, but it's a role nonetheless. Doesn't inherently make someone a better Christian than another. What about evangelist? That's the next title in Ephesians 4.11. An evangelist is a title, but what is an evangelist? It's just someone who shares the gospel. That's a function. That's a rule. What about pastor? That's the next title. Pastor just means shepherd. That's all it means. And it indicates a rule. Shepherding, guarding, protecting, feeding, caring. Teacher, one who teaches. Elder, a community leader. Overseer, someone who oversees. Deacon, a servant. All of them are just functional titles. In other words, what is Jesus saying here in this passage? He's saying, we're all in Christ. We are all equally brothers and sisters. No one's more a Christian than another Christian, but we do have distinct roles. And so, yes, we give titles to delineate those roles, but not in such a way that we say that person is a super Christian. That person is more a Christian than I'm a Christian. That doesn't exist. That doesn't exist in Jesus' kingdom. So some people, you know, they, uh, in our day and age, over time, a lot of these titles have taken on another nuance, like even pastor, right? In your mind, who's the pastor? The pastor is the guy who speaks up front all the time. He's the pastor. And yeah, there might be elders, but they're different. Well, actually, we could say this, pastors and elders and overseers, they're equal in the New Testament. But even then, there's a crude to the title pastor, a sense that, well, he's the super Christian, They put them up on a pedestal, which is why I don't really want to be called Pastor Chris. I appreciate those who you do it. I know it's a title of respect. I'm just Chris. I'm just here to serve you and help you, I hope, to follow Jesus more. There's one more title I didn't mention, 
in the New Testament, and that's the title saint. Saint. So you know Paul will address his letters to the saints of those who are in Rome or whoever. And all saint means is one set aside by God for his use. But the reality is in Christ, all of us are set aside for God for his use. It's just a question of which role do we have. So back to that question I asked you at the very beginning. What is the highest office in the local church? The answer to that question is saint. Member. We would call it member here. Membership is the most important office in the church. Why? Because the body exists with its members, all to do their role in the work of ministry. The highest office in the local church is saint, member. Now, then you might be asking a question, well, wait a minute, won't a certain dignity and honor accrue to elders, deacons, and deaconesses? Yes, because of the character that Jesus requires for those offices and the function and the service But this does not indicate any difference in Christian status. I'm no more a Christian than you are if you are in Christ. We are all equally brothers and sisters under the one Father and the one Christ. Any attempt to twist these titles into an attempt at self-promotion over fellow disciples is illegitimate, which is what Jesus is addressing But here's the good news of all of this. This frees us from ranking ourselves in terms of our role in the body. We are all equally members and saints if we are in Christ, and we each have our role in the body. My role looks different than yours, but we work together for the glory of Christ and the good of his church. We serve one another. We don't have to fear. We don't have to worry about status because that's all up to the Father in the new heavens and the new earth anyway. So here's another implication from all of this. Stop ranking your favorite preachers and teachers. Don't we do that? Well, I like this person, and that person's better than this person, and this person's better than this person. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians, and you know what he says? What is Apollos? What is Paul? It's all about God giving the growth. So I'm not saying that there aren't certain teachers out there that give you more help than others, but hopefully the help they're giving you is redirecting you to Christ, the one teacher over all. Stop ranking the preachers and the teachers. The question is, are they taking you back to the teaching of the Christ and allowing the Christ to guide you and to lead you? Because that is who is ultimately teaching you. If you are in Christ, that is ultimately who is leading you. Do you want high status given to you by the Father in the kingdom? Then do what? Humble yourself and serve your fellow disciples and fellow members in the local church. It's not wrong to seek status. Just don't seek it from one another. Seek it from your Father by what? Humble service under the Christ. And here's the other message. If you're lifting yourself high now, you will be humbled. And you will be humbled by the Father. If you're lifting yourself up now, you want status over one another, then the Father will humble you. If you're not in Christ at all, then you are lifting yourself high as a rival king. You are saying, I have rulership over my life. I determine my life. And you're lifting yourself up as a rival and rebel king and... The Father, as we saw last week, will put your neck under the heel of the Christ. 
the true king. You don't want that. I don't want that for you. What is the call? Lower yourself. Lower yourself now. Start by repentance, turning your allegiance from sin and self and bowing your knee, bowing to Christ. He is the true king, the true teacher. And enjoy him as king. You're done as a ruler. Enjoy him as his king and his rule. Not just to merely avert ultimate humiliation, which will happen if you continue to lift yourself up, but also so that you might enjoy his reign in, in that picture of the wedding feast that we saw a couple weeks ago. It's not just about averting punishment, it's about enjoying Christ, the true king, forever. So if you're lifting yourself high now, humble yourself to avoid ultimate humiliation in the future through repentance and faith in Christ. What is Jesus' message to the crowds and the disciples? Stop listening to play-acting teachers and humble yourself under the one teacher, the Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the one teacher. This is your church. Faith Bible Church is your church. We are brothers and sisters, the members here who have committed to one another. We are brothers and sisters seeking to serve one another and help one another. Help us to do that. Help us to emulate your example. God, guard, give us a servant, humble heart, rather than the heart we normally have, which is to exalt ourselves, to lift ourselves high. Lord, help us to see the practical ways we can use the gifts you've given. You've given a gift to every single member of this church to use. Help us all to use them well for the honor of your name, under the one Christ and under the one Father, empowered by the one Spirit. Lord, help us and strengthen us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.